Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, Dr. Francis Collins said this, the most important decision we are to make on this earth is about belief. Last week, we started a series called Borderlands of Belief, and we're looking closely uh, at what it means to believe or not to believe. And so if your faith is, maybe it's weak or fragile, uh, we think that the Gospel of John, where we're going to do the series, could, could fortify your faith. If you are, maybe you've never believed, and uh, you need a starting point, John certainly would like to help you with that as well. Uh, The Gospel of John, John states his purpose uh, so clearly. He talks about all the signs that Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples. Many of them aren't even written in this book, uh, meaning his book, the book of John. And he says, uh, but these, I've hand-selected a few. And strung them together so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you might have life in his name. So John wants to walk us through what it means to believe, the process of believing. The offer in John's mind is worth the consideration. And we said last week that there's a connection between what we believe and how we live. Whether you Consciously or unconsciously, you have certain beliefs. They are affecting the way uh, you live your life, even if you haven't thought much about them. Uh, So John arranges these signs, and his goal is that you see Jesus. Because he says if you're going to consider spiritual belief, then you need to look at it. You need to look at him. Uh, And John will tell you, don't just believe in belief. This is not just about being fascinated with the idea of faith. Uh, John will say, I want you to see what I saw. I want you to step into this search. Don't be passive, examine it. Use your rational capabilities. Think. But he'll also say, I'm hoping that while you're looking at it, You'll encounter Jesus, that you'll meet him personally, that you'll see who he is and experience him, and then come to receive the life that we have received. So John is going to say, basically, faith requires rational thought, but rational thought is not enough. God has rigged it that way, so that no one has so much evidence that it's just that obvious. But, John will say, faith is more than reason, but it's not less than that. So John is going to sort of teach us and walk us through this process of belief. We have very, very practical things we believe about belief in our everyday life. How much, how much information do you really need before you make a decision, practically speaking? How many, how many times do you rely on what someone else told you before you actually act? Those same things you use in everyday life, John will say, 
They're the same true for spiritual. Spiritual life and faith. So, uh, John will have you examine the signs and show you. He's going to reveal all that. And, and, and as he's doing that, he's going to show you the limits of signs. In case you're really wanting one. In case you won't believe without one. John's going to show you the limits of signs. And he's going to show you the dangers of signs. Because there's inherent spiritual dangers in wanting and seeing signs. Uh, The sign is designed, the reason John calls them signs is because they're designed to point to something else. Don't get enamored with the sign. A few years back, we went to, uh, a group of us went to northern Iraq and we went to see different places. This is when ISIS had just really gained full control of Mosul. And we were, uh, we were 30 minutes away from them. And we had gone into this little city right outside and we were looking at things. It was beautiful. Um, and it sort of went uphill from the road. You, could, you just went uphill. And from up there, you could just see out. And you could see out. You could see Mosul 30 minutes away. And you're driving out. You see this sign right here. And we all stopped and got out of the van we were in and, and we took about 10 pictures of this sign. And I'm not really sure why. We took about 10 pictures and we were all standing around it. So, you know, just a few of us and then the whole group of us were all by the sign. And we were all looking at the sign and we were enamored with it. But when you, when you look past the sign, you look past the sign, you look into Mosul. That's where you see it. It's just 30 minutes away. We were 30 minutes away from ISIS. And so uh, the reason we were enamored with the sign is because we weren't going anywhere past it. <laughs> That's where we were staying. We were hanging out at the sign. The sign was amazing. And we got enamored with the sign. Uh, for obvious reasons, we weren't going past the sign. And John is going to tell you, be careful because you'll get enamored with the sign and you'll miss what it's pointing to. I mean, it was pointing to something. And we didn't, we didn't want to think too hard about it. And we didn't want to get anywhere close to it. And so the sign was all we were left with. And I want to tell you something about signs and about seeing. Because John's going to say, sometimes, sometimes you can't see. It's just your perspective and where you sit, your experiences and what you know. You just can't see. We've all had that experience in our life. We just can't see it. And then there are other times when you just flat refuse to see it. You won't see it. And for different reasons, this is true. We have biases. Uh, we have stubbornness. We have selfishness, selfish reasons why we don't want to see. And of course, let's not exclude stupidity. Sometimes we're just being stupid. Uh, And John's going to reveal all of these capabilities in us as he reveals the signs. Sometimes we just don't look. Like Francis Collins, who I quoted at the beginning of this book, he's a scientist. He's uh, he's actually a world-leading scientist. He's the head of the Human Genome Project. And genome, in case you're not familiar with the term, uh, organisms have a complete set of DNA. Every cell in your body has 3.1 equivalent of 3.1 billion letters uh, sort of giving information about who you are and what you are. And in his book, The Language of God, he talks about his, his life and how he came to believe and how this project laid it out. 
laid out some things for him, but he was a perfect illustration of a person who didn't want to see. Grew up in a home that was agnostic, which means that they just weren't sure. They weren't denying there was a God, but they weren't affirming that there's one. They just sort of lived right in that middle, that no man's land on either side of the borders of belief or unbelief. And so his family was agnostic. He was agnostic. He got into, uh, you know, science world and then into the medical world. And then he just slowly shifted. He's not really sure how, but he just sort of shifted toward atheism because of his uh, scientific background and longing for evidence. Anyway, at 27 years old, he's in a, uh, he sort of shifts gears in his life and he gets in North Carolina, he's an intern, a medical intern. And he comes face to face with dying people and all of a sudden there was a reality to him, uh, to life that he starts to see. And he marveled at the way the patients that he was seeing handled their, you know, their mortality. And one particular lady, older woman, he had had many conversations with and got to know well. And many conversations about life and death and important things in, in the world. And one day she was telling him about her Christian faith. And at the end of that conversation, she said to him, uh, what do you believe? And he says in the book, uh, which I just finished, called The Language of God, he says, uh, it was the most awkward moment of my internship, but it was a life-changing moment. Because, he stammered, in that moment, I literally said to her, I'm not really sure. He had beliefs, but he had never seriously considered them. He said, after that moment, I, I decided that I was going to study the religions. I studied the religions, and then I got to Christianity. And considered them more seriously than I ever have. He's a brilliant mind. He studied the claims of Christ in the Gospels studied the evidence for the gospel writings themselves, found them to be quite compelling. And he had found himself past both of these, not really sure what to do with it. It was a year later. It was one year later he was by himself. And he said, in that moment, I had my encounter. He went from his rational thinking to a moment when he encountered Christ. And he said, when that moment hit me, I was as confident as I've ever been that God was real and that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins. I saw myself in relation to God in a way I never had before. So both elements. Now let me say something about uh, just oh, the whole rational arguments. I want to say this quickly here at the beginning of this series. Uh, I think it's important. Um, so in rumors... Yancey says, essentially, at, the, at sort of the beginning of it all, the real issue of belief and unbelief centers around whether the material world is all there is. Is the natural world all there is? Physical world. And so if you believe in the material world, you believe that the material world came into being by itself and sustains itself. Uh, if you don't believe in that, then you're sort of in the metaphysical side. You're on the opposite, you know, you're past the metaphysical, you think there's something supernatural, something personal. 
here you would think is just impersonal forces at work. So you have either side. And science, in our culture especially, screaming louder than other, uh, demands somehow that they, they have some kind of evidence that demands atheism. That the, what, the, what they have seen and what they have found is a, is, should be a, you know, a tight case for, uh, for not believing that there's anything supernatural. And, uh, but here's the thing, and this is just, this is just a fact. And if you're honest, and I have been reading some really honest atheists, smart, smart people. John Gray has a book out called Seven Types of Atheism. It's a not an easy read. Uh, I, I haven't even finished it. I've jumped around a little bit. It's tough read, but he says in it, uh, or, you know, um, there's honest atheists. I'll give you some of his quotes soon. Not today, but he says, um, the whole idea is you can't, no one can come here to the beginning. Neither camp can come here to the beginning and conclude that there is or there isn't a God. Uh, Because nobody was there and you can't test it. Nobody can go there. You can can theorize, but but no one's ever been here. No one can see it and science can't test it. Science can only test what is physical, material, and measurable and right before them, but they can't come here. And so the beginning of all of their thoughts is an assumption. And, and many would say it's, an, it's a matter of faith. You can't prove God and you can't disprove him. So neither side can claim higher ground uh, as it relates to rationality. Because at the end of the day, all beliefs, even unbeliefs, require faith. It takes faith to believe there is no God. And some would say more faith to believe that there is no God. Uh, reason always is, is always based on antecedent faith because none of us can come here and test it. None of us were here. In fact, Joseph Minnick in his book, I think I quoted it to you last week, or mentioned it to you, Enduring Divine Absence. He, he, he's, I think he's right when he says it's incredibly arrogant to not be able to be here and never have been there and not be able to test it, to come out and say, conclusively, there is no God. It's one thing to be on this side, an atheist, a materialist, and say, yeah, but there's a possibility. It's another thing to deny it completely, which is why I was just so fascinated by Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith. It's such an incredibly bold, arrogant statement to make. When you consider that even if you're a materialist, that's going to be based on certain matters you can't prove, which means you're, they're based on faith. The end of faith would be the end of his rational thinking. Just not logical. So if it's not provable, it's a matter of faith. This, is, this was Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager was, it's a wager. You're betting your life. You can't prove God and you can't disprove him. You're betting your life on one of those. And then Stephen Jay Gould, who I've been reading some of. He was a Harvard professor, a paleontologist, uh, evolutionary, evolutionary biologist, an atheist. Um, 
another brilliant guy. This is what he writes, and he died in 2002. Um, He says this, to say it for all my colleagues and for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. That means science can't make the judgment conclusively. He says, we neither affirm nor deny it. We simply can't comment on it as scientists. If some of our crowd have made untoward statements claiming that Darwinism disproves God, then I will find Mrs. McErnie, his third grade teacher, and have their knuckles wrapped for it. Science can work only with national or naturalistic explanations. It can neither affirm nor deny any other types of actors like God in other spheres, science included. So, we're all dealing in faith. We're all dealing with belief. One side doesn't get all the rational thinking and the other side's just blind hoping. That's not how it is at all. We're all in the same spot right here. That means rational thinking is not enough for believers or unbelievers. It requires faith on both sides. You just have to figure out what it takes, what kind of faith you want. So we're going to examine that, and I think John's gospel will help us. And I think it makes his claims about belief more important. The conversation important. Listen, I don't care what view you hold strongly. You may strongly view God exists in here. You may strongly view that he doesn't. But every one of you ought to be intellectually honest enough to say, but I'm not 100% sure. You're not operating with 100% certainty in anything. For all I know, my wife works for Blue Green Vacations. And she sucked me into there to sell me on it. I don't know for sure. I'm about 99% sure that she doesn't, but she might. You had to be here for Easter to know that one. (laughs) So what does John want us to do? John says, look, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Come on this journey with me and look at Jesus closely. Just look at him closely. And maybe you'll see that some, some of your beliefs are just not consistent with reality. Jesus is going to bring reality. Reality, things you can't deny. And hopefully your faiths or your beliefs will be consistent with how you actually think, feel, and experience the world. That's what John wants. So he takes us into the very first sign. And he actually calls it. Only two signs are mentioned consecutively. Or, or numbered, first and second. This is the first one. And uh, it's, the first, it's the end of the first week of Jesus' ministry. He's been alive for 30-something years, and now the first week, we're at the end of the first week. He has, John the Baptist has pointed him out as the beginning, and then he's met five guys already, and they're his disciples. So it's just starting, it's a big start, and by the end of the week, in this power-packed week of Jesus' life, is this wedding, which means somehow, he had not gotten out of Nazareth yet, and just nine miles away is Cana, 
And because he'd grown up there and Mary had been there all her life, well, they had a lot of friends and family, extended family probably lived in Cana. And they're at this wedding the same way you're ever at a wedding. is because you know, you know people. You're connected to them. Family or lifelong friends. And there you are. And so here they are in Cana for this event. Um, and that's essentially what uh, John is saying here. Let's see what we got. Uh, here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding. That's the third day after the last event that occurred. So this makes it the end of the week if you know the rest of the earlier part of John 1. And he says, uh, so here they are in Cana, the mother of Jesus was there, and now Jesus invited his disciples. He had, they're with him now, so they had to be dragged to a wedding. By the way, everyone's dragged to a wedding. Nobody, everybody's being dragged to a wedding. All right, you gotta hear Seinfeld on weddings. I'll just tell you, go find it. It's funny. All right, so he says here, uh, let's see. Uh, So they're at this wedding, and, and here's what happens. Uh, let me say a couple of things about weddings before I get to uh, this verse. Uh, so weddings are very, very significant events. That's why even though Jesus' ministry has launched and he's on a mission, uh, he's at it because he's connected to the family and certainly his mother uh, wanted him to be there. It was just appropriate for him to be at it. And so these are very significant events socially and culturally. In fact, I learned this week for the first time that there were legal ramifications for how you put a wedding on and how you attended one. You could get legally in trouble for not giving the right kind of gift at a wedding. How many of you would be in jail today for some of the stuff you've given to people at weddings? Absolutely. Uh, So uh, you couldn't violate those. They, They were just that significant. Special events. So wonderful Uh, They were to the Jews and even to, uh, in in the Old Testament, the prophets predicted that the Messianic age, when the Messiah was on the scene, it would be like a wedding. Why like a wedding? Because it's the most loving event. It's joyful. There's intimacy. There's relationship. There's commitment. It's all the things in life that you love the most get represented at an event like this. And so... uh, The Old Testament prophets said something like this regularly. There the wine would flow liberally. Let's read that in Jeremiah. Amos. They predict this time. And wine was a part of the celebration. Big part of the celebration. But they represented, these weddings represented the end time. When Messiah came at the end. The interesting thing about this particular thing, and all weddings really, is that they, ironically are about beginnings. So there's no better place for Jesus to start his ministry than in a wedding, or at a wedding, uh, to sort of take that symbolism and pull what is pictured as the future into the present. As if Jesus were saying at this wedding, let's get the messianic party started. It's kind of what he's saying. So wedding themselves are beginnings. Now, let's say something about that because I think it gives the feel to this story. Weddings themselves uh, are beginnings and at this time, this is when everyone is looking their best, they are acting their best, and they hope for the best. Uh, I've done so many of them, great ones, bad ones, 
Uh, I'll never tell which. I'll be in trouble. Uh, you'll never look as good as you do on that day, probably. And you'll never smile so much again if you're the bride or the groom. That's what you'll do. And you're about, and what's interesting about it is, uh, you know, the bride, and I'll, sometimes I'll go, I'll go, uh, I'll have to say something to the bride last minute. And so I find out where she is, and then I got to go in there, and there's, a, there's just like, you know, there's about 82 people getting her ready. And she's not completely perfect. And no matter what she looks like in reality, she's going to present the best of herself. She's going to present the most flawless view of herself that she can. That's one of the things that happens uh, at a wedding. And what's so interesting about that is that the very next day will be the beginning of actually her being revealed in a way for the rest of her life with all her flaws. And the same with him. He's going to put his best foot forward that day, but at the end of the day, what happens in weddings, they're just the beginning. You get revealed. And when you get revealed, you get broken. And then there's a kind of death. Right? There's a kind of death. I think Mike Mason really hits this point in my favorite book on marriage called The Mystery of Marriage, more than 25 years old now. Uh, still my favorite. He says, this, in marriage, the suspense builds like the unfolding of a murder mystery in which we ourselves turn out to be the victim. <laughs> which one of you have, not, have been married for a certain amount? I don't care how long you've been married. Six days or 60 years? There's a part of you that's dead. <laughs> There's a part of you that's dead. And so when they pop over to the table, but here's the thing, you know, I'm, I just did one recently and I'm sitting at the table and the bride and groom will show up to your table and they'll say hello to everybody at the table and they pop in there and they're so, you know, they're so enthusiastic and happy and they're dressed perfect and, and the people sitting around the table, you know, been married, uh, you know, 20 years, 33 years, we're looking at them like, wipe that smile off your face. We know what's coming and, you know, we're going to be happy for you, we're going to have the best wish, but we know what's coming. But you don't bring that up. That's not what you say at the wedding. You sort of hide that reality. <laughs> it's too much. And this is the thing about this wedding because Jesus is about to bring both of these realities together. He's about to bring, let's not lose sight. This is something he did just so masterfully. He had a way of dealing with reality like nobody else. And he's gonna bring up that darker side and at the same time, highlight the joy. And he's gonna do it in the most loving and subtle way. It almost goes completely unnoticed. This is the most interesting to me of the seven signs. Uh, it's similar to the resurrection that only a few knew, but in this particular public sign, of the seven John uses, um, this one goes unnoticed by, by the majority of the people around. It's not as public. Uh, there's no clear mention of a miracle happening. Uh, Jesus' disciples don't do anything. It's not like they touch anything. They're not the ones who do it. But you know, like when the feeding of the 5,000, he'll say, go get me some bread and fish. And then Jesus will touch it. Jesus touches nothing. He stands in the background. He just gives some directions. And then he's out. He doesn't even pronounce the miracle after it happens. Uh, 
and only a tiny few get it. It's almost as if this particular miracle of them all was intended for the reader beyond just his disciples. It's the most private of the miracles. And it begins with a really catastrophic thing, socially speaking. Not the worst thing that can happen in life, by a stretch. But it's a pretty, because weddings were such a big deal, the wine ran out. And then Jesus' mother goes to tell him. They have no wine. Look how simple it is. I mean, the economy of words used in this particular text are really important. I'm going to show you why that is here in just a moment. But here you got, you got this problem, this disaster. You know, careful calculations go into planning. Weddings could last up to seven days. And so if the wife is in there trying, or the bride is trying to look as beautiful as she can and flawless as she can, he's trying to prove himself. Because one year before this day occurs, he was betrothed to this woman. That was a legal binding thing. That engagement was legal. You had to have a divorce to get out of that engagement. And he gets to spend one year now building a house for her, getting his life ready, proving himself, providing that he can do it. And the wedding was away. You know, the, they, he builds the house and then he has full responsibility for the wedding. He's in charge of all of it, the planning and the costs. That's a tradition we got away from fast. And I think it was because of this story right here. <laughs> you don't let that guy plan the wedding. They're going to run out of something. Because they don't care. Guys don't care. <laughs> that was a horrible tradition. I don't know how. We've modified that thing. Uh, but, so he's trying to prove himself. Now listen, here's what Jesus, this is the point of this statement right here. Material resources will run out. That's the picture of the symbolism behind the whole idea. In other words, Jesus is going to take this wedding and he's going to even pull it out of their metaphorical thinking about it and he's going to make it even a bigger picture of reality. All material resources run out. If that's what you're hoping in, it ends up empty. And so Jesus is saying that's the nature of physical reality. Ultimately it falls short and ultimately it's unfulfilling. And then you've got to ask the question, where do you turn? Where do you go? When it runs out. Sometimes you experience that sort of uh, lack of resource for dealing with life somewhere along the way. And Mary becomes the picture of the person who seems to know where to go when that happens. Remember, Mary's a widow. Jesus would have been the head of the household. He's the one taking care of her. At the cross, he tells John, she's your responsibility now. Mary's been relying on him for quite some time. Joseph's been off the scene. How many crises has Jesus gotten Mary through? How many times has, she been, has he been a resource for her? She knows where to go when there's a crisis. Now, Mary's probably not, it's not likely that she's a, a, you know, in charge of anything, but if you're at a wedding and something like this is about to happen and you can do something about it because you know the people and you love the people, you don't want there to be any, there's an honor and shame culture. You don't want anybody shamed. 
If you can solve the problem and you have a resource, you're going to go to him and you're going to ask him. Who knows how many times Mary didn't have time to make dinner and she looked over at Jesus. I won't tell anybody. (laughs) If you'll just put dinner on the table right now. All right? Who knows? I'm not speculating. All I know is she knows who to go to. And so... uh, This is what Jesus says to her. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. This is a very, very significant moment. This is the moment when Jesus sort of pulls the curtain back on reality that weddings hide. And he looks at his mom and he calls her woman and that's not necessarily, you know, it sounds a little bit harsh and it's, it's really not inappropriate, but it's not exceptionally loving either. And so you wonder what in the world is going on here. And Jesus uses this phrase uh, that literally says, what is that to me and to you? That's a Semitic phrase. I don't have time to validate this. I wish I did. But it's used about five times in the Gospels. It's all used by demons. And here it comes out of Jesus' mouth. And his whole point is, I'm separating myself from you. I'm disengaging from you. In other words, whatever we were, we are not anymore. I'm on a mission. I have started my ministry. I am headed to something. That something is the hour that my father has predicted. And John's gospel uses that hour over and over again to describe the cross. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Ma, I'm on a mission. No longer will you be able to rely on me in the same way. No longer will you be able to advise me on things. I'm on my father's mission now. That's essentially what's happening here. It's not really culturally disrespectful. He never calls her mom, by the way. And he rarely, if ever, I can only think of maybe once where he calls her Mary. Never called her by name. And most of the women, he, almost all the, all the women he speaks to in John, Samaritan woman and, and others, he calls woman. So it's, it's not horrible, but it is signifying a disconnect. And so Jesus is essentially, now we don't know what hour means yet in John's book because he hasn't told us. So what it's designed to do is pique some interest. What does he mean by that? What is he saying by that? And here's essentially what Jesus is saying. I'm thinking past this event. To the, I'm thinking past the crisis of this event to the ultimate crisis of reality when material resources run out. And the only way to save, I'm not here to save weddings, I'm here to save the world. And the only way to do that is my death. That's the hour. The only way to deal with the ultimate emptiness in the world that weddings beautifully hide is to die. And so here comes this sort of dark shadow over this beautiful event. But isn't that reality? What happens when the dark reality 
sort of comes over your joyful moments? Where do you go? How do you deal with it? What do you trust in? What are you hoping? Are you even asking the questions? Are you curious? Are you content with the answers? Do they resonate with you on the inside? John wants you to see them. And so Mary, in an act of faith, another act of faith, not only knowing to go to Jesus, but in another act of faith, she says to the servants, and this is just classic, ah, uh, whatever he says you to do it. This is Mary, you're like, I'm not sure Mary really understood what Jesus meant by the death, you know, or how he's gonna handle, you know, what, what, what ultimate crisis he's talking about. She's just talking about the crisis here, but she knows something about him, enough to be able to say to the servants, like, I'm not really sure what he's talking about, but I know he can fix his wedding thing. So do what he says. That's faith. Ultimately, faith is knowing who to go to, and then when he, when he tells you to do something, even though you don't fully understand it, what do you do? You just do it. And that's Mary teaching us. Who do you go to? Do you have someone you can go to? And when he speaks, do you listen? So, She's picturing this for us. And now Jesus, very subtle, even though this sort of morbid tone has gotten to this incredible event, Jesus decides he's gonna handle the problem almost as a picture of how he's gonna handle the problem. And then he writes this. This is what he says. So after she whispers that to the servants, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Just in, the, in this site, right over here, you'd see them. And they would be at every event because the, the Jews were nuts about cleanliness. They weren't OCD. They weren't germaphobes. They were worried about their spiritual life. They just had to clean everything, utensils, everything. So it was constant water for purification. That means it wasn't drinking water. It was just for purification. And they had rules about washing their hands and when to wash them. And then you had, sometimes you had to wash all the way up to your elbow in certain circumstances. It was designed for purification. And this just whole image right here brings the symbolism into this picture. How are you handling the shortfall? How are you handling the failure? How are you handling the, the issue of cleanliness and sin and being right before God? This just brings it right to it. How's that being dealt with? Because that's what's on Jesus' mind. And this was how the Jews handled it. This was how they got pure. This washed. And so here, John is gonna allude to the amount, the quantity of the miracle Jesus is about to perform. It's gonna be overwhelming. We're talking about 110 to 150 gallons. And then he writes, and Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So these are the instructions. Jesus given instructions, just sort of step inside. Hadn't touched anything. His disciples hadn't touched anything. And here they are, filled to the brim. What does he mean? Just completely. And this would be a picture of if you took the purification system of Israel and you put it all the way to the rim, in other words, you put everything you had in it, it still wouldn't be enough. 
That's the idea. Whatever you're doing to purify yourself before God, it won't ever be enough. It won't ever be complete. And it's a picture of its time has been fulfilled. No longer will we operate like this. That Jesus is is about to replace the cleansing system. And it doesn't matter how hard you work. You'll never be spiritually clean before. All the constant effort will fall short. Jesus is saying, I will replace this process for sin. I ultimately will cleanse, forgive, redeem, make acceptable, and make you whole. It won't happen any other way. And so the head waiter is called because he's the one in charge of This is the guy that the bridegroom has hired to make sure the things get done. And so um, they call him over, and he's an important character in this, even though he knows nothing of what's going on. He knows nothing of how. He's, I'm sure, aware of the shortage. But he has no idea uh, of the miracle. He has no idea what's going on. No one does just the ones, just the servants who filled it up and, and the small, the disciples and Jesus himself and the mom, that's it. I mean, it's very small in this whole wedding. And the head waiter tastes this water which had become wine. That's as much as you get about the miracle that's happened. You anticipate a miracle by the writing, but you don't see it. And it's just, just one verb. It's just a participle. And somewhere in that participle, this miracle happens. Quietly without even being stated. And they did not know where it came from. Only the servants did. This is a way to tell you, this is a private miracle. No attention is being drawn to it. And when the head waiter tastes it, he's, he calls the bridegroom. So, uh, And this is what he says. He said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now let's think about this for a minute. There's no announcement to this. There's limited knowledge. He can't explain. That's the beauty of his character in the story. No one can explain how this happened. Um, He thinks there's been a mistake. That's sort of the impression you get when you encounter Jesus and you consider what he's saying. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how we deal with sin. We have dealt with sin like this for so long. Are you, what are you saying? There's just no explanation for it. And it makes his testimony uh, so much more compelling that he doesn't even know a miracle has occurred, but he's drawing attention not just to the quantity, but the quality of this thing Jesus has produced. It's just so great. Who can explain this? This is not how things are done, he says to this. You don't serve the good wine first. And Jesus is basically saying, yes, God's plan now with me on the scene is as if he's saying the best for last. We did it this way, but now God's gonna do his best work through me as it relates to sin. And so he assesses the quality here. Now, if you're the bridegroom, 
if you're the bridegroom and the head waiter calls you over and he tells you that, man, this is some good stuff. This is the best stuff. Who's ever done that? Now, if you're the bridegroom, you're standing there and you have a moment of trying to figure out what you're going to say. Do you say something like, well, of course, that was my plan all along. I was always intending to deserve the best. I was always intending to do something no one expected because I'm the man. No, he's standing there going, you got to be kidding me. Shocked. He's going to be every bit as shocked as the head waiter is. And that's the point of the story. Who is this guy on the scene who's going to handle this whole concept of intimate relationships different than God ever has or that we ever have? It's just beautiful. You better believe he was relieved. Because a lot was riding on his reputation. Jesus does something really beautiful here by not being a part of the end of this story. Jesus not calling attention to himself. He didn't didn't say, uh, yeah, uh, I'll explain this. Everybody, could I have your attention please? Stop the music. If you could just put your forks down. We ran out of wine, but I got you. He could have done that. But he's not calling attention to himself. He's not announcing the miracle. And who do you think benefited the most from that? That bridegroom whose reputation was on the line. His shame was covered. Just what weddings do. You just cover the flaws. Jesus saying, ultimately, there is no covering for flaws. There's only ultimate forgiveness. And Jesus covers his shame, his failure, and the miscalculation of this bridegroom. And he shows himself to be, what John will reveal him to be, is the ultimate bridegroom. Because in John chapter 3... John the Baptist will literally say, he's the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. So Jesus is revealed to be the ultimate bridegroom. And then in Matthew 9, remember when they asked Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? He said, because the bridegroom's here, and when you're the bridegroom, you rejoice. So Jesus is picturing himself, what we all picture in weddings is this sort of overshadowing of death, sort of the, the death of each of us. We, we will all die a little to become what we have to be, to forgive one another, to live with each other's flaws and imperfections. Jesus sort of reveals that and at the same time re- reminds us that he is the ultimate provider, the ultimate lover. His death will bring us joy what we ultimately long for. So in marriage, which the Bible uses as a symbol to describe God's intimate love relationship with human beings, becomes the picture of how two human beings will try to live with each other's flaws 
and how the bridegroom will come in. You could be married. I don't know how long you've been married, but the truth of the matter is we'll never perfectly love each other. You've been married 60 years, even if you've been married that long. But there is a bridegroom who can love. You can be fully known with all your imperfections and be fully loved and delighted in. And listen, John would say, that's the wine. And with Jesus, it comes in a quantity you can't believe and a quality that you've never experienced before. That's the joy. That's the wine. And the, and the head waiter is the one who says, and this is the best. This is the best. He announces nothing better than that. And so the question of the text is, have you tasted that? Do you know that joy? The thing you have always inside of you, even though the, the, the material world runs out, do you know that internal relationship with God? I love this verse. Came across it just a few weeks ago reading uh, Psalms. Psalm 470 says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Isn't that a great verse? He knows that kind of joy. And the disciples, this is the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, and it manifested his glory. We saw something about God we would have never known. We saw something about reality, unless Jesus showed up on the scene, no one would have predicted this, no one would have been able to explain it, nobody would have known it, and the head waiter makes that clear. What is going on? Whatever it is, Jesus, John is saying, keep your eye on Jesus, and it'll slowly unfold. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.